All right. Good evening, everyone. Let us let us begin. So it is an incredible schus to be back, Baruch Hashem, and um, to continue in our learning of Sefer Tilma. Actually, I, I had a thought for a moment tonight to maybe go ahead and actually do something related to Asara Bateves, given the fact that it is often a very overlooked, a very overlooked fast day in, in terms of the deeper meaning and profundity of the day. But again, Given the fact that we have to make up some ground in Sefer Tehillim, we're going to go. We're going to go further. So, what I'd like to do tonight is Emirat Hashem begin Perak Tes, Chapter Nine. Again, as I'm kind of going back and looking over Sefer Tehillim, for some reason there are holes in the Shiurim that I've given over the last number of years, and for some reason it appears it appears that I never went ahead and and taught Perak Tes and taught uh, Chapter Nine in Sefer Tehillim. So, Emirat Hashem, we're going to begin this particular capital this evening. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks on this capital. And the reason we're going to do that is because, as you're going to see, there are a couple of really incredible dramatic themes in this, and a couple of very well-known psukim in this as well that we're going to focus on. But let's first get a general overview of the capital. If we take a look at number one, so David Amalek writes, Lam Natseach al Mus Labain Mizmor Ledavid. So already we know that this is going to be a good capital because from the first passage we already have no idea what David Amalek is talking about. Right? What, what is, what is al Mus Labain? First of all, I'll also point out to you, there are different, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention the shear is dedicated by the Engelsberg, Dinovitzer, and Steinberg families. Le'iloi Nishmas Harav Yitzchak David Ben Meir Ari Yitzchakron Levracha. We hope that and the merit of our Talmud Torah, the Nisham will have an Aliyah and the family in Nechama. So you'll look at different, different versions of Sefer Tehillim and you'll notice, by the way, that this first Pasuk is di- written different ways. Sometimes you'll find Al-Mus as two words, Ayin Lamid, word one, Mus, word two. Sometimes you'll find it as it's mentioned over here, Al-Mus as one word, and Labain also we'll see sometimes is vocalized differently in different versions. Either way, it's one of these phrases, Amus Labain, that at first glance, it is not clear what or to whom David HaMelech is referring. Good. So, Lamateach, Mizmor David. Just as an aside, by the way, I don't think I mentioned this since we've started this series, and I've mentioned in the past, it's also always interesting to go ahead and see that some kapitlach have the phrase Mizmor Ledavid, and some have Ledavid Mizmor. We're going to talk about that. We might begin to touch on that tonight. Most probably that'll be much more of our focus in Hashem next week. But whether you see Mizmor Ledavid or Ledavid Mizmor fundamentally sets the table differently for the particular capital. Okay, and what does David HaMelech say? Quite a beautiful beginning. I, pray, I thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu with all of my heart. And I will go ahead and tell all of your wonders. So the truth is, this capital seems to be really nice. Because it seems that the tone is what? Tone is what? Upbeat. Happy. Right? David HaMelech is rejoicing. He's thanking. Now, why is he so happy? Pasuk Dalid. When my enemies draw backward, they stumble and are destroyed from before you. You, you were the judge. You, you, you visited justice upon those who persecuted me. So you look on, the rest of the capital is actually quite amazing. That whereas up until this point, a number of the 
Kapitlach we spoke about, we're speaking about David HaMelech contending with his enemies. David HaMelech was always speaking as the underdog, right? He was always speaking as the persecuted individual. And while it's true that the greatness of David HaMelech is the ability to pull out the seeds of optimism, even in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances, the theme was often one of David feeling beaten down. Feeling beaten down, at the same time saying, even though I feel beaten down, I'm confident I'm going to come out of this. I'm confident it's going to be okay. I'm confident that you are going to right the wrongs. This capital is a little bit different. This capital is David HaMelech singing a song of victory. A victory. I have been victorious over my enemies, or better stated, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You've been victorious over my enemies. David Melch then goes on and he launches into the persecutions that he has suffered at the hands of his enemies, but he's not writing as a victim, he's writing as a victor. Right? Remember again, Sefer Tehillim really vacillates between these two states. Victim, victor, victor, victim. And David Melch is both. Is both. And the truth is he's both simultaneously. He is the victim, as again, many terrible things were done to him by other people over the course of his lifetime. But the greatness of David HaMelech was a refusal, was a refusal to allow himself to be categorized as a victim. You know, this in general is an interesting aside. You often find this in general when people deal with trauma. There are people who very often define themselves by their trauma. Right? Who am I? I'm a trauma survivor. That, that's what I am. And there are other, which is totally understandable. A person, person summons up the koach to be able to survive a trauma. So that's a badge of honor to be a survivor of trauma. There are other people who understand or feel that although, yes, I am a survivor of trauma, being a survivor does not define the totality of who I am. I remember my grandmother, Zichron Levracha, used to always, used to always feel uncomfortable. She survived the war. She used to always feel uncomfortable when people just refer to her as a survivor. She said, I'm much more than a survivor. I did much more than survive Hitler. Yeah, I survived Hitler. And I, Bar Hashem, I had a family. And I worked hard. And I raised the Mishpacha. And I had from children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I'm so much more than just having survived my trauma. Being a survivor is an incredible first step. But then the question is, what do you do now with your survival? So David HaMelech, it's fascinating to see how one person could be the survivor and the thriver. One person could be the victim and the victor. And it's not contradictory, but rather, again, it really represents the dynamic of personalistic growth. I go from being a victim because what's the problem being a victim? What's the problem being a victim? See, people don't realize this. But when you allow yourself to live out your life as a victim, you yield the reins of your life to someone else. If I'm a victim, that means someone else controls my narrative. Someone did something to me. Someone did something and really legitimately terrible. And now they're writing my life story. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. People don't realize this. I'm yielding total control of my life to the person who victimized me. Now, I might be a victim. It's very true. I might actually be a victim. But the question is, am I willing to let go of the reins of my personalistic development for the rest of my life or do I want them back? I may have been victimized, but I don't want to stay. I don't want to remain in that state. 
the greatness of David HaMelech. So this capital is an unusually upbeat. Of course, you know, David HaMelech wasn't exactly the life of the party because, you know, even when his capital is upbeat, it still has incredible overtones of suffering because that's the nature of his life. You know, there is no period of King David's life that is without suffering. The, the truth is, you know, the, um, the, the not so well-known tagline of all great Jewish leaders, especially those in Tanakh, is none of them have an easy life. None of them has any. Now, it, does. it doesn't mean that greatness only comes with adversity, but what it does mean is exceptional greatness only comes with adversity. So David HaMelech, again, there's no such thing as a capital that's written with just joy without hints of adversity because adversity was part of the fabric of his life. That's just the way that it was. There was no escaping that. But what we begin to see over here is here the theme, the dominant theme is I am the victor. As opposed to in previous Kapitlach, the dominant theme was, I am the victim. So let's, let's, let's focus on two things tonight. First, let's understand that phrase, Al-Mus Labain. Right? Look, if you look at Pasuk Aleph, here's what we know. Lam Natsach, what does Lam Natsach mean? Good, don't tell me to the conductor. I know, I wrote it on a piece of paper, right? Right, to the conductor. But remember again, who's the conductor? Who's the conductor? the head of the Levitic choir. Remember again, David HaMelech wrote Tehillim to be sung by the Levim in the Beis HaMikdash. So Damatseach is to the conductor. It's not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. It actually means to the conductor of the Levitic choir. Sainol Damatseach and Mizmor David, a song of David. Again, we'll get into Mizmor David, David Mizmor more next week. What I don't know is those two or three words, Almus Labain. What does that mean? So this is fascinating because there is a dramatic machlokis on Mepharshim. A dispute. Look at Rashi number two. Rashi says, Amuslabain. And by the way, if you notice in Rashi's gears and Rashi's version, if you look at number two, you'll notice Rashi has it as what? Two right? Two words. Al-mus is two words. Al-mus. Yesh posrin al-muslabain ames bino avshalom. You know, one of the other very dark chapters in David HaMelech's life was the rebellion of his son, Avshalom. Right? Avshalom rebels against David HaMelech and Avsh- in, in a brutal rebellion. A brutal rebellion. David HaMelech refuses to fight his son. Instead, what does he effectively do? He pretty much abdicates the throne. He packs his bags. He leaves Yerushalayim. Even though his generals are telling him, you have to fight. You have to fight. This is your throne. This is your people. This is your nation. David HaMelech will not fight against his son. He chooses to flee. He chooses to flee. Not out of fear. Not out of fear. But David HaMelech was not going to raise a sword against his son. Well, you know the story. Ultimately, Avshalom is killed by David's generals. Right? Avshalom is killed. So Rashi says, first opinion says, it's incredible. Lam Natseach al-mus labain. A song for the conductor when the son died. The son being a reference to Avshalom. To Avshalom. Rashi says, however, So Rashi says, but it doesn't make sense. I'll tell you why it doesn't make sense. First of all, on most this level, why doesn't it make sense? Why doesn't it make sense? From a parental perspective, why doesn't it make sense? David HaMelech is not singing a song after his son died. Right? As much as Avshalom was a threat to the throne, you have to understand something. And, and this is probably the most important part about understanding David HaMelech. 
David HaMelech did not need the monarchy. He did not want the monarchy, right? Meaning the greatest leaders don't want to be leaders. The greatest leaders don't want the power. They, they, they don't have an interest in it. So if you give David HaMelech a choice between being David Malcolm Meshicha, the king of Am Yisrael, the father of the Messianic line, or having a normal, quiet life, take a wild guess which one he would have chosen. The quiet, normal life. David HaMelech never signed up for any of this. He was conscripted. He was drafted by the Ribbon Shalom. So Rashi says over here, what? David HaMelech is going to sing when Avshalom died? David HaMelech was heartbroken. In fact, amazingly enough, David HaMelech, David HaMelech, you know, you, I'm sure you learned the story in Navi, when Avshalom is killed, the morning that David HaMelech you did, Avshalom Bini, Bini Avshalom Bini, Bini Avshalom Bini, David HaMelech was mourning for this child, like he was like the Gadol Hadar. Meanwhile, Avshalom was terrible. Avshalom was terrible, terrible, terrible. Right? And David HaMelech was mourning. You know, they say, Rechaim Shemulevet, was just uh, a week and a half ago. I, I know that because I was diving in a shul in Yerushalayim. Besides, my sons told me at the mirror they had a whole thing for the yard site. But amazingly enough, only Yerushalayim. I'm diving at a shul in Yerushalayim and the guy gets up for the omen and someone says, oh, that's Rechaim Shmulevitz's son. And he had yard site. He had yard site that night. Rechaim Shmulevitz, during Aseris Mechuva, used to go and daven at Yad of Shalom. Yad of Shalom is the tomb of Avshalom. We know where Avshalom is buried, right? Yad of Shalom, go down. And people ask him, why are you davening at Yad of Shalom? Avshalom was a Russia. He says, because if a human father could have so much love and so much compassion and so much empathy for a son who was so bad in so many ways, then my father, the Ribbono Shalom, could have compassion on me as well. That's, so Rashi says, This is a song. This is a celebration. David HaMelech was crushed when Avshalom was killed. Not only that, says Rashi, the capital makes no reference of Avshalom. There, there, there's no reference to Avshalom in this. So at the end of the day, Rashi rejects that. Fine, that's first opinion, that's gone. Next, Interesting enough, some say, Labain is the same words as, same letters as, Novel, novel. Who was novel? You know the story of novel, the husband of Abigail, right? Ultimately, again, David Amalek is on the run. This is even before he officially assumed the throne. He's on the run from Shoal. He reaches out to novel for help, and novel rejects him. But not just rejects him, but is very disparaging. They're very disparaging of him. So novel ultimately again dies. He's actually novel. Novel dies. So Rashi says, second opinion is Amus Labain. Labain, same letters as Novel. He sang the song when Novel died. So Ve'en Mizrahi Zichron. Rashi it doesn't make sense either. Why? Because again, there's no reference in the capital to Novel. So listen to this. So then Rashi quotes over here. The other possibility is that it's referring to the destruction of Amalek. Last line in number two. Others say Rashi's third opinion is that it's referring to Amalek. And in fact, it's referring, again, this capital is a metaphor for the future, for the future um, success or the future victory over Amalek. Okay, so Rashi giving three different interpretations as Hula Bain is Radak. And number three says, listen to this. Labain 
is one of David HaMelech's enemies. There was a guy. He was David HaMelech's enemy. He was a Gentile king. His name was Labain. Ah, you never heard of him? You know, and it's something amazing. We haven't heard of a lot of David HaMelech's enemies, right? Because at the end of the day, we get a very small sampling in Navi of all the adversity that David HaMelech underwent. So the Radak says, literally, this was a capital that David HaMelech sang when he overcome this, overcame this enemy, this Gentile king, Labain. Okay, another approach. Look at the Radak. It's just fascinating. Look at number four, the Radak. Ki Labain hu biyud vuhu golyas. Radak mentions another point, which is that who was Labain? Labain is Goliath. Goliath. You know, amazingly enough, remember, we'll talk about David and Goliath a little bit more, but the encounter between, you know, every part of David and Melech's life is filled with so much drama and trauma. You know, we think about David and Melech killed Goliath, right? He killed, he killed Goliath. Incredible victory. You know, there's one little important detail to understand. Goliath was David's cousin, right? Remember again, Goliath is a descendant of Arpa, and David is a descendant of Rus. Of Rus, they descend from two sisters. They're direct lines, right? Goliath is Ben Achar Ben, son after son from Arpa. David Amalekh is Ben Achar Ben from Rus. Two cousins faced each other on the battlefield. There is no part of David Amalekh's life, even his victories, that aren't mired in some level of adversity. So an incredible thing. But the Radak says, Labain, ultimately again, is Goliath. Is Goliath. Good. Rashi comes along finally in number five and says a totally different approach. Rashi says, Rashi here says something so beautiful. Rashi says, I think we're looking in the wrong direction. Everybody is looking to Labain, to understand Labain as referring to a person. A person is it Avshalom? Is it Naval? Maybe it's even Amalek? Is it Goliath? Rashi says, I think it refers to something else. Labain, Rashi says, is Lavan, white. White, meaning what? Listen to how beautiful this is. Number five. This song, excuse me, David Amalek wrote, for the Messianic era, for Messianic redemption. Why? What's going to happen in the Messianic redemption? This is so incredibly beautiful. What is the hallmark of the Messianic era? What's the hallmark of the Messianic era? Labain. Peace, but also inner peace. Labain. We're going to be cleansed. We're going to be cleansed. You know, I just want to point out, this is a double-edged sword. You know, the Gemara says, we don't accept converts in the Messianic era. And the reason for that is because in order to convert, right, there has to be, there has to be a Messiah's nefesh. There has to be a sense of self-sacrifice. In the Messianic era, everybody's going to want to be part of the winning team. Right? So there's no converts in the Messianic era. Not only that, even more dramatic. So the Gemara quotes an opinion that says, there's no tshuva in the Messianic era. You can't do tshuva in the Messianic era. In other words, why? Because in Mashiach, part of the profundity of tshuva is that bechira, you have free choice. 
I said, I could choose to do tshuva, choose not to do tshuva. In the Messianic era, there's going to be such a manifestation of the divine that HaKadosh Baruch Hu's existence, the centrality and truthfulness of the Torah is going to be so clear that there's not almost to a certain degree, to a certain degree, that desire to sin is going to be removed. Where if the desire to sin is going to be removed, then by definition, there's no concept of tshuva as well, which is why it is so important to do Tshuva now. I'm not talking to anyone here, but perhaps you have a friend who needs to do tshuva, right? It is so important. If something is broken, fix it now. Fix it now. Because we, we believe every day. I believe that Mashiach is coming tomorrow. I believe it with all of my heart that Mashiach comes tomorrow. As much as I want that, I'm like, oh no, I don't want that yet. Because I have stuff I have to fix. And if I don't fix it before Mashiach comes, it's quite possible that I may not have the opportunity to fix it in the same way, which is why if something is broken, there is literally no time like the present to be able to fix it now, because if I don't take that opportunity and Mashiach comes, certain opportunities for self-elevation and for self-refinement may literally be lost. But in any event, Rashi says over here, Amus Labain refers to the Messianic era. Refers to the Messianic era. Now listen to this. He says, what's going to happen in the Messianic era? We're going to be cleansed, whitewashed, whitewashed. There's going to be a certain type of almost like purging of the negative, purging of sin in the Messianic era. Our righteousness will be revealed. Interestingly enough, what, the way Rashi understands the Pasuk is like this. Daramel says, I'm composing a song to be sung in the Messianic era. And what is going to happen in the Messianic era? Almus Labain. We will become white, cleansed. Rashi says, Almus means like a child. Like a child. That in the Messianic era, we are restored to that childhood purity. To that childhood purity. To that innocence, to that beauty. You know, anyone who gets to spend a little bit of time, you know, it's interesting how adults are always drawn to babies, right? It's something, it's something fascinating to see that, and right, even normally very serious and respectable people do like the strangest things, right, around babies. What's the shot? Why is it that, which, you know, Rabbi Nachman says so beautifully, why are adults drawn to babies? Because the amazing part is when I see a baby, there's a part of me that says, I wish I was like you. I wish I was like you. You're pure. You're pure. You haven't made any mistakes. You haven't messed up anything in life. Everything is in front of you. Everything is in before you. The world is your kosher oyster, right? You could do, you could do, you could do, and you could be whatever you want. And I don't really believe that about myself. I don't really believe that about myself because I feel like I've kind of, to a certain degree, kind of put myself in a certain corner, in a certain box, in a certain area in life where I don't have all of the options that I used to have. But when you see a baby and you see as an adult, you see, oh my gosh, your whole life is in front of you. You could do, you could be whatever you want. We're drawn to that. So, so says Rashi something so beautiful. David Amalek says, you know what happens in the Messianic era? Almos labain. We are returned to that childlike purity. Messianic era is a life do-over. You get to start again. 
the slate is wiped clean. We are like little children who have an entire life filled with opportunity and possibilities in front of us. So I'm ju- I just say I mentioned as an aside, because it's not our topic for tonight, but of course there is so much machlokis regarding what the Messianic era is. I, I just want to put that out there, right? You have everything, the Gemara quotes opinions that say in the Messianic era, people are going to plant grain seeds and loaves of bread are going to come out of the ground. You're not going to have to make bread, it's going to come out of the ground, which represents just a, a, heightened, a heightened state of productivity in the world. Others say, again, everything is going to be supernatural. And then you have the opinion of the Rambam and others who say, Olam Kimin Hago Noheg. No, the world is going to go on like normal, like normal. I was there was the Messianic era. Everyone is going to recognize the oneness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Everyone's going to recognize Am Yisrael's right to Eretz Yisrael. But otherwise, Olam Kimin Hago Noheg. The world will go on as normal. So again, it's not our topic for tonight to get into this, but I'm just pointing out, I don't know where Rashi fits into all this, but Rashi tells us, La Nasser in the Messianic era, Almus Labain. I will be restored to that childlike whiteness, to that childlike beginning, to that freshness, to that new beginning. Gives us another reason to daven for the Messianic era. Because at the end of the day, who amongst us? doesn't want a clean slate, right? Who doesn't want a new beginning, a real new beginning, a real reboot, a life reboot, where I could take everything I've learned from all of my mistakes and this time live life a little bit differently going forward. Well, it's another reason to daven for Mashiach because in Merit Hashem, that's what's waiting for each of us, that new beginning, that reboot, that restart, the almos labain, the childlike whiteness. That's Pasuk Aleph. So now again, and you're going to see as we go through this capital in the next couple of weeks, what we're also going to see is how each of the different opinions as to how to interpret Amos Labain see the rest of the capital in different ways, right? If you think it's talking about of Shalom, you see this in one way, right? You see that it's talking about Goliath, it's a different way. Depending on who the subject of the capital is will determine ultimately again what David Amalek is saying over the course of the capital. But I want to draw your attention to one piece, one more piece for tonight, which is go back to number one for just a moment and take a look at Pasuk Beis. Pasuk Beis. David HaMelech writes, O de Hashem asapra kol Literally, I will thank Hashem with all of my heart. I will tell all your wonders. So struck by this lashon, by this wording of O de Hashem Meaning, just say O de Hashem. I'll thank you Hashem. What do you mean I'll thank you, I'll thank Hashem with all of my heart? As opposed to what? As opposed to half of my heart, part of my heart, a third of my heart. In other words, had David HaMelech not said anything about his heart, I would have also understood that he's thanking Hashem with all of his heart. Why does he have to add in that phrase, Beholibi? So if we take a look at the Radak, the Radak gives a beautiful interpretation. And the Radak writes in number six, I'm sorry, Oda Hashem Beholibi, Ki Tishua Gidola Haisela David, Uli Yisrael, most most So remember, the Radak is going with the opinion that Amus Labain is a reference to the death of Goliath of Goliath. So therefore, says the Radak, after David Amalek killed Goliath, there was an incredible feeling of salvation, an incredible, like almost like a euphoric salvation for Klal Yisrael. Ki akol pela echad 
Yisaper ha'adam ha'peloim ha'acherim she'avru. The Radak here says something so beautiful. He says, in life, in life, when something incredible happens to you, it often opens your eyes to the other incredible things that have happened to you as well. In other words, sometimes as we go through life, we're not so attentive to the dramatic events which unfold all around us, right? So there are beautiful, magnificent things that happen every single day in life, but often I'm just not really attentive to them. But then what happens? Something incredible happens, which forces me to stop, pause, reflect, internalize. And then I begin to see how many incredible things are really happening all around me all of the time. You know where I think often we experience this? You know, it, it, it's not necessarily the right way to experience it, but I think it's true. Sometimes what happens is like a person has like chas v'shalom, you know, like a near-death experience, right? A person is, was almost in an accident. A person was almost, and a person realized, wow, wow, I was just saved by Kaddish Baruch Hu. Something amazing happened. And then what happens? Like it opens my eyes to all of the beautiful brachos all around me. The problem, of course, what often ends up happening is it wears off after about four and a half hours, right? That, that, that's the problem. But you feel that way. Something amazing happens, forces me to stop, contemplate, pause, internalize. Wow, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, did something so amazing for me. And suddenly, my eyes are open. That's what David HaMalach is saying. Oda Hashem Becholibi. David kills Goliath. Remember again, shouldn't have happened. Shouldn't have happened. A nice nigla, right? An, an absolute profound miracle. Young David, who is not a trained soldier, all he's armed with is his slingshot, his smooth stones, and somehow he is able to go ahead and kill the mightiest warrior on the face of the civilized earth. How does that happen? That is a miracle. So David HaMalach says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, now that you perform this miracle for me, I'm filled with such gratitude because I realize all of the things you do for me. And I guess I should have realized them earlier on. And I guess I should have been a little bit more attentive earlier on. But human nature is we tend to just get kind of caught up in the flow of life and don't think about all the beautiful things that are happening around us. But when something forces us to stop and reflect, suddenly I begin to appreciate and understand all of the things that are happening around me. But perhaps... There is another interpretation of that Becholibi as well. And I think to understand this, we're going to look at a dramatic episode from the parasha. If you take a look, remember again this week we had the incredible privilege to be parashas Vayechi. We are concluding B'Sha'a Tova Umetzlachos Sefer Bereshis. And Parshas Vayechi is really not just the end of a Sefer, it's the end of an era. Right? Remember again, with the close of Chomish Bereshis and the Parshas Vayechi, so the narrative of the Avos and the Mos, the Patriarchs and the Matriarchs, comes to an end. Right? That story, their, their stories are done. We transition from the stories of individuals to Sefer Shmos, which is the book of the collective. It's the story of Am Yisrael, right? Bereshis is not the story of the Jewish people. Bereshis is the story of heroic individuals, Avos and Imos. Shmos is the story of the birth of a nation. So something amazing happens here. So remember what happens in Parashas Vayechi. So it's important to have a little bit of context. The Gemara says that up until Yaakov Avinu, no one ever got sick. Right? How would people die? The Gemara says how people die? They would sneeze. They would sneeze. Right? They would sneeze. Then the neshama comes in through the nose. Then the neshama would leave through the nose. And that's it. That's how you would leave this world. You would sneeze and that would be it. That'd be it. Yaakov Avinu davened for illness, which sounds strange. 
Why did he daven for illness? He said, it's important for people to know when the end is near. This way, they can get their affairs in order. Because if people just die, right? And that's why we see this sometimes. When someone passes away without quote-unquote notice, right? A sudden death. It's, it's tragic on so many levels, but part of the tragedy is the inability to say goodbye, right? The inability to kind of tie off or, you know, close out one's affairs. But David, so Yaakov, you know, David, let there be illness, let there be sickness, a person should know that they're dying, so that this way they could go ahead and get their affairs in order. And that's why it sounds strange, but you know, when a person has illness and they know that the end is coming, there is a certain bracha in that, right? A bracha for a family to get to say goodbye to a loved one, and a bracha for the person to get to say the things that need to be said and to do the things that need to get done. There is a bracha in illness before death. We often don't think about it like this, but there is truly a bracha in this ability to kind of close out life by saying and doing all the things you need to do. And the paradigmatic example of this is Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu has an unusual story. Because remember again, what does Yaakov Avinu do? He speaks to each of his sons, delivering to each of them an individualized message from his deathbed. He finishes giving them the message. What does he do? Right? He lays down, closes his eyes, and he passes away. So in one of these exchanges, so before Yaakov gets to the brachos with his sons, there is a very interesting exchange with Yosef. This is number seven. Torah says, So right, Yosef, right, messenger comes to Yosef, Yosef, your father is ill. Yosef takes his sons, Menashe and Ephraim, to go visit his father. So skip down a little bit. Skip down a little bit if you go ahead and you take a look. So first of all, so Yaakov tells Yosef, by the way, your two sons are going to go ahead and assume their place in the Shvatim. Ephraim and Menashe are going to become tribes. Remember, this did not happen with anyone else's children. This was Yosef's peace time. Yosef was the Bachar. He was the Bachar of Rachel Imenu, who was the initial intended wife of Yaakov. Yaakov gives him his double portion, gives Yosef a double portion. By essentially, there's no tribe of Yosef. The tribe of Yosef becomes two tribes. Ephraim and Menashe. This is what Yaakov Avinu says to Yosef on his deathbed. But look at Pasuk Zion. Then Yaakov Avinu says, Vani, bifawimi padan, meisalai rachal be'eretz kena be'derech, be'derech ba'od kivras aretz lavo efrasa, vek berasham be'derech efras, hi beis lochem. And then Yaakov Avinu says, and Yosef, for me, by the way, when I was coming from Padan Aram, Rachel died, Rachel died, and it was on the way to Eretz Kenan, or in the road of Eretz Kenan. There was still a stretch of land to come to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, which is in Beit Lechem. In Beit Lechem, buried her again on the side of the road. It's actually incredible. We just, last week, we had the incredible Zuchos, incredible Zuchos to be in Kevin Rachel. And actually, again, we got to this thing that I never had the opportunity to do before, um, which is we went to the roof, to the dome, of Kever Rachel, which is really incredible. Like, so this is like the ancient dome of Kever Rachel. So we had the great Zuchos to be able to go there. It's actually amazing because we went to a, an army base beforehand where they monitor all the cameras in the vicinity. And um, we, I decided, you know what, I always ask if I go up to the dome. And the answer for, I don't know, 30 years has always been no, 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 no. Because again, it's Beis Lechem. It's not exactly a friendly area. 
but they were checking the cameras in the regions and they said, okay, if you go now, you could go up to the roof. So we literally, again, went from the Ari base right to, right, to the, right to the dome of Kevarachal. And my daughter, who I'm going to embarrass, Nechamu, we were supposed to be in Eretzwa for Abbas Mitzvah last year, but that didn't work out because of the pandemic, had the great zuchos to do hafrasha schala on the dome of Kevarachal. The Dome of Kevarachal. And at least the person who told us, told us it was the first time there was ever Hafrasha Schala done on the Dome of Kevarachal. So, an incredible and overwhelming Zuchos. So Yaakov Avinu says, Yaakov Avinu says to Yosef, says to Yosef, I buried Rachel inside the road. Buried Rachel inside the road. So, okay. Right? And by the way, I want to point out, remember, now, now, Kevarachal is in the middle of a city. Right, it's in the middle of Beis Lechem, which again, you, you don't see Beis Lechem when you go to Kevarachal because of the concrete walls that are there. But it's in the middle of a city. It's in the middle of a city. When Yaakov you know, buried, buried Rachel in what became known as Kevarachal, it was the middle of nowhere. It's the middle of nowhere. So Yaakov Avinu says to Yosef, by the way, when I was coming back from the house of Lavan, Rachel died in childbirth and I buried her on the side of the road. Okay. So the Mafarshim scrambled on and said, what's going on over here? It has nothing to do with anything. Remember again, what's the context of the conversation? The context of the conversation is Yaakov Avinu telling Yosef, your sons are going to assume their role within Am Yisrael as Shvatim. They're going to be tribes. Menashe and Ephraim become two tribes alongside all of their uncles. That's the conversation here. That's the conversation. And then for some reason, out of nowhere, Yaakov Avinu brings up the death and burial of Rachel by the side of the road. So the Shiloh, the question that the Mepharshim grapple with is, why is Yaakov bringing this up here? So there's a number of different approaches, many, many, many approaches, more than what we're going to cover tonight. But I'll show you, show you number eight. Rav Saratskin, the Aznaim, the Torah says something beautiful. He says, Bepashtus Amrlei, Shesira Amokam Kvuras Imo, Shema Shachach Merov Yamim. This is such a, this is such a, this, this tugs on the heartstrings. Yaakov is saying to Yosef, Yosef, I just want to make sure you remember where your mother is buried. I know it's been a long time since you've been home. And I know most probably you're never ever going to go home again, at least while you're living. Right? You're not going to go home. You're a viceroy in Egypt. And that job comes with responsibility. I just want to make sure you remember where your mother is buried. Because when I die, when I die, the only people really who are going to visit her kever potentially are her sons. Right? Are you and Binyamin. So Binyamin, so Binyamin knows where his mother is buried. But Yosef just want to make sure you know where your mother is buried. And he says, Shema, Shema Shachach, Merov Yamim. Yosef, you've been gone for over two decades. Do you remember where your mother's buried? And Yaakov says, Yosef, when I die, there will be no one to show you where the grave is. So his name, which, which is... There's, there's so much profundity in this because what you see according to Aznaim, the Torah is Yaakov Avinu wanting desperately to make sure that his beloved Rachel is never forgotten. My other sons aren't going to Kevah Rachel, right? Because Rachel's not their mother. Rachel's not their mother. And in fact, remember again, there was difficulty in the relationship between Rachel and Leah, right? And there was animosity between the children of Rachel and Leah. So Yaakov Avinu says, What's going to happen when I die? Is anyone going to remember Rachel? Is anyone going to go to her grave? Is anyone ever going to visit her? So Yaakov Avinu telling his son, by the way, don't forget your mother. 
Don't forget your mother, which is why in general, when one goes to Eretz Yisrael, how incredibly important it is, to go to Hebron, to go to Keva Rachel, to visit your parents. How can you go to Eretz Yisrael and not visit, it's not dangerous, and not visit your parents? You have to, because if we don't visit our parents, then who's going to remember them? Then who's going to be this Yaakov Avinu saying to Yosef, don't forget your mother. That's the Aznaim Torah. That's Aznaim Torah. Refers says a similar idea, but Rashi says something amazing. Rashi says over here, Va'ani bevoimi padan. So Rashi says there is an entire kind of subtext. There is an, you know how sometimes people have two conversations. There's the conversation that we're talking about, and then there's the conversation we're not talking about, but we're still talking about. So Rashi says, there are two conversations happening over here. Conversational one is right beforehand. Yaakov Avinu says to Yosef, when I die, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I want you to take me to Marasa Machpelah. Right? I want you to take me back to the cave of the patriarchs. I want you to bury me in Hebron. I want to be buried alongside my father and my mother, my grandfather and my grandmother. That's where I want you to take me. So Rashi says, Yaakov says to Yosef, look at this, number nine. And even though I'm asking you a big to do to take me back to the land of Canaan and bury me there. And I know I didn't do this for your mother. I didn't do this for your mother. Yaakov says to Yosef, I know I'm asking you to do something for me that I, Yaakov, did not do for my own wife, did not do for Rachel. And what happens? Skip down a little bit. Two, four lines up from the bottom in number nine. So Yaakov says, you know, Yosef, I'm asking you to take me. And by the way, it's a big to-do. It's a big to-do to take Yaakov remains from Egypt to Hebron, to Hebron, to bury Marasamachpil. It's a big to-do. And Yaakov Avinu says, you know what? And I know I'm asking you to do something that I did not do for your mother. I didn't even bring Rachel into Beis Lechem proper. I didn't actually even bring her into the city. I buried her by the side of the road. And Yaakov says to Yosef, I know that you're angry at me. Yaakov says to Yosef, I know you're angry at me. I know that you have kindness against me. I know that you're bragging with me. I know. I know you have complaints against me. And I know you're throwing, Yosef, you're thinking to yourself, what a chutzpah. What a chutzpah. You're asking me to take you to Marasamach Pela. Sure, you want a nice burial, something mechubad in the place of your ancestors. Marasamach Pela. Oh, great. You put my mother by the side of the road. You put my mother in an unmarked grave by the side of the road. So Yaakov Avinu says to Yosef, I know you're upset at me. I know you're upset at me because I'm asking you to do something that I did not do for your mother. But Yaakov Avinu goes on and he says, Please understand, I buried your mother by the side of the road for a very important reason. See, right now her grave looks like it's in the middle of nowhere. But fast forward a little bit in Jewish history. That when the first Beit Samikdash was destroyed and the Jews are being led out, chained and shackled by Nevudzaran Rabbah Tabachim, Nevudzaran, the chief butcher of Nevuchadnezzar. Nevuchadnezzar unknowingly leads them past the grave 
of Rachel Imenu. And Rachel Imenu sees her children being led out, chained and shackled. And that's when it's Rachel Mevaka Albaneha. Rachel Imenu comes and she cries for us and she advocates and she pleads. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Rachel Imenu, Mini kolech mi bechi. Rachel, stop crying. Stop crying. I promise you, I'll bring your children back home. So Yaakov says to Yosef, I know you're upset at me because you think I gave your mother a very unbefitting levaya and a very unbefitting kavura. And here I am asking for all this covet for myself to be buried in an ancestral plot and I buried your mother in the middle of nowhere. It's only the middle of nowhere now, but when her children need her most, her burial place is going to be the most important somewhere. It is on the road out of Eretz Yisrael. But Yerushalayim, like we say in the Kinos. When we left Yerushalayim, broken and battered, chained and shackled, we walked by the grave of Rachel Imenu. And it was then and there that she was able to go ahead and advocate for us. The Sfarno says something a little bit different. The Sfarno says, but something similar, but a little bit different. The Sfarno says, same idea. Yaakovinu says to Yosef, Yosef, I know you're upset at me. I know you're upset at me. I know you're upset at me. Because at the end of the day, I'm asking for all of this covet in my burial and I gave none of it to your mother. But Yosef, I want you to understand why I buried your mother in the middle of nowhere. Look what the Svarno says. This is incredible. Second line, number 10. So Yaakovina says to Yosef, you have to understand something. We had just come back from the house of Lavan. We were back in Eretz Yisrael. Rachel and I, together, Leah, all the kids, getting ready to restart our life. And then, in what should have been a moment of incredible joy, the birth of a child, Rachel died. And look what Yaakov says. Yaakovino says to Yosef, I was so overwhelmed by my grief. I did not even have the strength to take her to a proper cemetery. I was so overcome with grief that the only thing I could do is bury her where she died. I, I, I didn't even have the koach to be, I was so overcome, so paralyzed and immobilized and overcome with grief and with pain that I couldn't do what I was supposed to do. I know what I should have done. I know what I should have done. Maybe I should have taken her to Marasa Machpelah, to Chevron. Or if I couldn't take her to Chevron, again, remember, Beis Lechem is not far from Chevron. If I couldn't take her to Chevron, at least I should have buried her in the city. I should have buried her in a cemetery in Beis Lechem. But I was so overwhelmed and overcome by grief that I could not do what I should have done. I know what I should have done. But Yosef, I'm telling you, you don't understand it because you never lived through it. In that moment, I couldn't do it. I just, I just, I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have the koach, I didn't have the ability to do it. And he goes on, he says, Yaakov, you says something, it's so heartbreaking. He says, I just want you to know, from the moment your mother died, I was a shell of a person. 
I was never the same after her death. I had no desire to remarry. I had no desire to go ahead and have more children. Because when your mother died, a huge piece of me died along with her. So what you see is something amazing. Both according to Rashi and the Svarno, the underlying narrative is the same. Which is Yaakov Avinu telling Yosef, I know you're upset at me. I know you're upset at me. Now, what is this doing here? So remember again, you have to understand, Yaakov Avinu saying to Yosef, Yosef, incredible news. Menashe and Ephraim, Kiruvein v'shimon yiuli. Menashe and Ephraim, they become like tribes. Incredible, incredible, right? And you expect Yosef to see, yeah, dad, excellent, incredible, fantastic. What's Yosef's reaction to the great news? What's Yosef's reaction? What's Yosef's, you can see it, by the way, you don't have to guess, right? What's Yosef's reaction when his father tells him, Ephraim and going to be like the tribes. What's Yosef's reaction? Nothing. Nothing. There's no reaction. Now, by the way, there might be no reaction for a couple of reasons. If you're Yosef, you might be thinking to yourself, please don't play favorites. Please don't play favorites. It did not work well the last time. Let's not do this again. Right? That's possible. It's also possible that it just wasn't Derek Harris to react. Yaakov Avinu interprets Yosef's silence as anger. As anger. I got it. You're angry at me. I just told you something amazing that your sons, by the way, and that is big news, right? Somebody were to tell you your kids, right? People, I mean, there are many people who think that their children are like Shavatim, right? But, you know, but, but again, right? Imagine for a moment, again, you're told your children are going to become part of the 12 tribes, the Shvatim, the Shiv Tekah. Incredible. Acknowledge. A thank you. A shkoyach. A great. Hatzlocha. Something. Something. Silence. Yaakov, you know, interprets it. You're angry. You're angry. And I know why you're angry. And that's why he launches into the whole discussion. I buried Rachel by the side of the road. See, here's what's amazing. Rashi and the Svarno give attribute two different explanations to Yaakov. See, according to Rashi, according to Rashi, Yaakov intentionally buries Rachel by the side of the road in what appears right now to be the middle of nowhere. Because later on in history, that's going to become a significant somewhere. And Rachel Imenu is exactly where she needs to be for when her children are going to need her most. But according to the Svarno, according to the Svarno, at the end of the day, Yaakovinu says to Yosef, there was no plan. I just didn't have strength. I was broken. I was broken. It's not an excuse. It's just a statement of reality. I was absolutely unequivocally broken and I did not do what I should have done. I didn't do good by your mother. I know what I should have done for her. And I understand that you are upset with me. Rechaim Shmulevitz in number 11. So we'll say this outside. It says something. He says, what do you see from here? What do you see from here? Rechaim Shmulevitz says that in life and in relationships, we have to learn to talk about the things that are uncomfortable. You see, so often in relationships, so often in relationships, there are things we don't talk about. There are things we don't talk about. Now, I want to be clear. In some relationships, especially people who are not very close to you, that's totally fine. There could be things you don't talk about. That's okay. You know, and sometimes, again, in order to keep shalom, we have to not talk about certain things. I think every family has that dynamic with some people, right? There are certain things we just don't bring up because coexistence and even a superficial shalom is better than no shalom at all. But for people with whom you want the real relationship in life, whether it's in a marriage 
or whether it's with children, or whether it's with parents, or whether it's with friends who are real friends. We have to master the art of talking about the things that are really uncomfortable to talk about. You see, here's the amazing part. Was Yosef upset with his father? Was Yosef upset with his father? We don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, right? He never said anything. Was his silence braggishness or was his silence just deference, right? Just deference, meaning we take it for granted that children talk back to parents, right? But again, remember, once upon a time, it wasn't like in a faraway land, right? It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. That sometimes, again, parents would talk, children would listen, and that, that would kind of be the end of it. So it could be that Yosef's silence is a deferential silence. It doesn't have to be a brightest silence, an angry silence. But Yaakov Avinu felt, you're my son, I love you. We were apart for 22 years and I don't want to be apart anymore. You know, two people could be standing right next to each other and yet they are worlds apart. There are people who have been married for decades and yet they are worlds apart. There are people, there are parents and children who may inhabit this same address and yet they are worlds apart. Why? Because there are things, there are issues, there are topics that are painful, that are divisive, that are difficult, that I know about it, you know about it, I'm thinking about it, you're thinking about it, but let's not talk about it. As if somehow, if we don't talk about it for long enough, it'll just magically disappear, right? And one day we'll wake up and all of the painful issues will be gone and everything will be perfect. But of course, the more time that goes by that we don't talk about the painful things, the more painful they become. And more often than not, what happens? What happens in relationships where there are painful issues that are not dealt with? People just gradually grow apart. They just grow apart. There might not be any machlokas, right? There might not be any fighting, right? There might be, there's no sin of, there's no animosity. But we just simply grow apart over time. Because there is so much pain and so much difficulty and so much challenge beneath the surface. Yaakov Avinu says to his son Yosef, I love you. And I'm your father. And I loved your mother. Was I a perfect father? No. Chazal tells Yaakov Avinu wasn't a perfect father. Like every other parent who's not perfect. Right? He favored one son over the other and that caused the disaster. He was an imperfect father. And it's also possible that he was an imperfect husband. He could get in line for that one, right? right? It's quite possible he's an imperfect husband as well. It's possible. Let's talk about it. Because if you're upset at me about something, I want to hear it. Maybe I have... See, according to Rashi, here's what's amazing. According to Rashi, Yaakov has an answer. Maybe you're upset because you think I buried your mother in the middle of nowhere. I, but you're wrong. You're wrong. It's not the middle of nowhere. It's HaKadosh Baruch who guided me, her burial place was chosen, was ordained, she'll be an advocate for her children. According to the Svarno, Yaakov has no answer. I was overcome by grief. And, and maybe, Yosef, maybe in your eyes that makes me weak. And maybe that makes me less of a man in your eyes. And maybe the respect even ebbs away even more. I don't know. I don't know. But I'll tell you what I do know is we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. And we have to put it on the table. Because if we don't put it on the table, then the little bit of time that we have left together will just continue to grow apart. Yaakov Avinu does something so brave. He does the bravest relationship thing that a person could do in any life relationship, which is talk about the thing that no one 
wants to talk about. Now, again, I just, I want to give a little caveat on this. This does not mean that now you should start calling all of your relatives, right? And let's talk about, right? Because again, I want to be clear. There are times where superficial shalom is great. I tell people this all the time, right? People have problems with their in-laws or people have problems with their parents or not all siblings get along. As much as it's wonderful for everybody to be close, that's not the way of the world. And I would venture to say in most life relationships, superficial shalom is fantastic, right? If you could coexist and everybody could be at the same Hanukkah party together and no one hates each other and no one this, or at least not to the face, no one hates each other, right? And everybody goes, that's great. That's okay. That's fine. Not everybody doesn't have to be one big, happy, close family. And by the way, I want to tell you a little secret. The people you think who have that, they actually don't have it, right? They just put on an incredible show, which is fantastic, which is great. It's good to put on a show. It's okay. It's okay to have superficial shalom. But there are certain relationships that you need to be solid. And there are certain relationships that you do need for them to be 100%. And that's different for different people. For some people, that has to be my marriage. Other people, maybe my marriage is not like that for whatever the reason. It's with my siblings. It's with my parents. It's with my kids. The relationships that are important to you in life, the relationships that are mission critical to your personalistic development, those have to be the honest relationships. We're willing to put everything on the table, recognizing that sometimes when you put everything on the table, you don't always have a good answer. Right? According to the Svarno, all Yaakov Avinu was able to tell his son was, I was weak. I, I'm a human being. I was overcome by grief. I didn't expect Rachel to die. And I was just paralyzed, and I just buried her in the first open plot of land. That's what happened. There's no nevua, there's no this, there's no grand plan. It was just me as a frail and broken human being. But ultimately, again, we have to be willing to talk about the things which are uncomfortable in order to build real relationship. But just, just to kind of come full circle where this will stop, perhaps, 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 that's what David HaMelech means when he says the phrase, Oda Hashem Bechol Libi. Right? Think about this in just a moment. What does it mean to have a relationship with Hashem with all of your heart? Right? In fact, we say this in Shema, right? I have to love Hashem with all of my heart. So perhaps to love Hashem with all of your heart is the same dynamic. I have to be willing to talk about the things that I am uncomfortable talking about. You know, each of us have things in our lives that we've done or that we are doing that we're really uncomfortable with. Really uncomfortable with. Sometimes it's something that's just bad. Something is, sometimes it's something that's immoral, that's inappropriate, that's wrong, that's avera. And I'm doing it. And I'm doing it. And I know that I'm... And I don't talk to HaKadosh Baruch Hu about that because I'm uncomfortable bringing that up. I'll go to bring it up. Now, of course, the irony of that is, <laughs> he knows it anyway, right? He knows it anyway. But I'm not really willing to bring it up. I'm not, I'm not really willing to bring it up. I, I will tell you, I had, this, I had this epiphany when I was in Eretz Yisrael that I had a particular moment where I felt that for the first time in a very long time, I was a thousand percent transparent and honest with the Ribbana Shalom. And it is liberating. It's liberating. 
to not forget about just talking about the things that I need. Tomorrow morning is our tefillah class. We'll speak about again the dynamic of tefillah and how I do a tefillah. But when was the last time I actually had an open, transparent conversation with Hakadosh Baruch Hu? I'm put it on the table. I know you know, but I'm going to tell you what I did. I'm going to tell you what I did. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing now, and I want to tell you what I've done in the past. Because I've got a lot of things that I've done in my past that I don't like to think about that I did. I don't, I don't like to talk about it because I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm just uncomfortable about it. And, and the truth is, it's not me anymore. But I want to put it all on the table. Because as long as there's something that's simmering beneath the surface, as long as there's something that's unsaid, the relationship is stunted. Yaakov Avinu teaches us that if you want to be close to someone, you have to be willing to talk about the things that are uncomfortable. And David HaMalach says, Hashem I want to talk to you and I want to love you with all of my heart. And what that requires of me is to put everything on the table and to even talk about the things that I am uncomfortable talking about. And by the way, it's the same thing in a relationship with ourselves. Right? The only way to have a real relationship with yourself is to be honest. And I know it sounds obvious, but if we're honest, how many of us are really honest with ourselves? Right? How many of us are really honest about who we are, where we're holding, what we're doing? You see, the irony is we're often guarded even with ourselves. There are certain things about me that I don't want to talk about with me. There are certain things about me that I don't want to talk about with God. I'm not talking about other people right now. I don't want to talk about it. And David Amalek teaches us, Yaakov teaches us, if you're not willing to be open with you about you, and you're not willing to be open with you to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then by definition, I can't have a beautiful relationship with Hashem, and I can't have a beautiful relationship with myself. Oda Hashem Bechol Libi. If we want a relationship with others, if we want a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and if we want a relationship with ourselves, we have to be willing to talk about the uncomfortable things. And I will tell you, just having experienced a moment like this not so long ago, it feels like a million pounds are lifted off your shoulders. Because often we project an image to ourselves that's not the real me. It's not the real me. I'm not, I'm not really owning certain things that I do. And certain things that I have done, as in my relationship, I put so much energy into perpetuating a persona, perpetuating an image to other people, to Akadish Baruch, to myself, it's exhausting. But when I'm actually honest, like Yaakov Avinu, and I put everything on the table, then suddenly again, I know the real me. And if I can know the real me, I can advance and better this me. And suddenly I have an open and honest conversation with Akadish Baruch. And suddenly, I have an open and honest marriage. And I have an open and honest relationship with my children and with my parents and with my friends. This was the model of Yaakov Avinu. Find the courage to discuss the uncomfortable things. This was the Oda Hashem Becholibi. But whereas Yaakov Avinu did it with a child, David Malach teaches us to do it with our loved ones, to do it with ourselves, and to do it with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We'll stop over here for tonight. In Mirat Hashem, we will continue with Parak Tess. We'll probably spend another two weeks in Mirat Hashem on it. And again, tomorrow morning is our second installment in the Tefillah Shir. What time do we start? 10 o'clock? 
10 a.m. tomorrow morning in Mir Sashem.